Okay, thanks Dan. Thank you David. Thank you one and all for your presence and for the warm welcome in the name of the Lord. It's great to be here. Now, let's turn to the Word of God. That's why we're here, to the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians and the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. One Corinthians chapter ten and we'll commence our reading at verse one. No, actually let's go just let's go back to the, the last few verses of chapter nine. Verse twenty four of chapter nine. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat of the same spiritual meat. And did all drink of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters or neither become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were, were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the, world's, uh, the, end of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak unto wise men, Judge ye what I say. 
That will conclude our reading from the Word of God. If I had to put a title over the message that has been laid upon my heart for this weekend, particularly for today, and we will see how we go in view of time, and maybe we will continue on this theme tomorrow, but if I had to put a title on my message for the weekend, it would be the title of Self-Discipline in the life of the believer, in view of finishing well. I want us to understand that in this conference, at least from what I will impart to you from the Word of God, I trust with the help of God. I want us to all understand that the end is in view. It could conclude for any one of us today, this pathway, this race that we have been reading about, this Christian pathway which is illustrated for us by the apostle as a race, it could conclude for any one of us today, young or old. But the question is, how will it conclude? Where am I really in the life of the pathway of faith? How am I running with the prize in view? What in relation to the rewards that are up ahead? So I, I guess that as it has been to my own heart, it will be challenging for all of us here. And I hope I don't preempt uh, what we're going to look at in relation to on Sunday afternoon. But uh, we're going to start here anyway. Now, when you come to this section of the epistle, the apostle, of course, in the first four chapters has already dealt with the subject of rivalry in relation to the believers. Then in chapters 5 to 7, he's dealt with the subject of relationships and the questions that they had in view of this great subject. Obviously, the immoral relationship that was taking place in the, in the Corinthian assembly and then the marriage relationship. But he arrives now at this section beginning at chapter 8 and concluding in chapter 10, about the subject of self-restraint in the life of the believer. You see, in the Corinthian assembly, what was taking place were, there were those who had liberty to do certain things, and they were exercising their liberty at the expense of others who were becoming stumbled by this liberty. So the apostle is going to address that in the life of the believer. He's going to address those who have certain liberties. And I want to speak about that this weekend. Now, we have liberties as believers, but we must make sure that our liberties do not stumble another. So he speaks about liberties in the life of the believer. In relation to that, he speaks about the necessity for self-restraint and self-discipline because it could be, it could be, he says, that those liberties eventually cause you to stumble. Because somehow we think in these liberties that we have that we're strong and strong enough to stand. So he says, just guard against that. Don't think that you can stand. Because the moment you think you're standing, <laughs> it's the moment that you fall. And that has been illustrated for us by many people throughout the Scriptures, and he's going to teach us this lesson here. Not only in relation to the person that has the liberties, but in relation to those that are being stumbled. He says, look, 
You don't want to become disqualified yourself. But it would be an absolute tragedy if you cause others to become disqualified. In fact, when you open chapter 8, and you'll see as he opens that subject, the subject matter really is the eating of meats offered to idols. And he's going to take that up and deal with that. There were, to my mind at least, there were three main questions that the, the believers in Corinth had been asking the apostle. Could they eat meat from the marketplace that had been offered to idols? Could they go to an unbeliever's house and, and eat meat in the unbeliever's house that had possibly been offered to idols? And, and could they go into the idol temple and sit knowing that meat had been offered to idols? And he addresses those three questions, but so typically of the Apostle Paul, the way he addresses them is this. You see, the, the Corinthian believers, they had questions for the Apostle Paul, and Paul receives those questions, and he's going to write back to them, but he gives them an underlying lesson. He deals with those questions, but he deals with them at the end. And you'll see that at the end of chapter 10, in the last section of chapter 10. In fact, chapter 10 is, is broken up into three sections. He says, I'm going to teach you some lessons from Israel's baptism. He says, I'm going to teach you some lessons from Israel's behavior in the wilderness. And then I'm going to teach you some lessons from Israel's blessings. And the last part... Of that, the last section of that chapter, he deals with those three questions in, the relation, in relation to eating meat offered to idols. But so typical of the Apostle Paul, there's something else in his mind. He sees a greater problem here. And the greater problem was this, that the Corinthians needed to understand that to arrive at the finish line undisqualified, requires self-discipline in the life of the believer. Oh, beloved brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that could be imparted to my soul and imparted to yours this weekend, is the necessity for self-discipline according to the Word of God in the life of us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens chapter 8, he, he opens the subject in relation to the eating of meat, he, 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 he shows clearly that the idol is nothing, he, he, he speaks about how there are many idols, but there is only one God. He draws to a conclusion in, in chapter 8 in relation uh, to this matter, let me just bring it up here and refresh my memory. And he speaks about the, those that have liberty and, and for it not to be a stumbling block in the life of, of believers who don't have such liberties. But then he comes into chapter 9 and he's going, to, he's going to bring a vital truth to the minds of the believers. The main point in chapter 9 is this. He's going to teach the believers that even as an apostle, he himself had to regulate his life in view of self-discipline. Now, that's an amazing thing. He had certain rights and privileges as an apostle, but he's going to show to the Corinthian believers that even as an apostle, he restrained himself in view of being able to teach these believers and impart to them the great truth of self-discipline in their lives too, so that they could never point a finger at him and say, well, you didn't exercise this self-discipline in your life, Paul. He says, I did, and I can prove it to you. You say, there were times when I should have received from you, but I worked with my hands, and I refused to take. There were times when I should have benefited, 
from the assembly here. But he said, I didn't receive that. And I exercised self-discipline in my own life in order that you might benefit. And it was at a cost to himself. Of course, he, in view of that subject, in view of, of proving to them that he exercised, exercised self-discipline in his own life, he had to open chapter 9 by proving to them first of his apostolic authority because they were trying to deny that. They were trying to uh, deny that he had that authority as, as an apostle and, and deny his, ap uh, his uh, apostolic position. So he opens chapter 9 and he proves to them clearly, having seen the risen Christ, that he is an apostle sent from God. By the way, just as an aside, and I don't want to get into too many of them in view of the time, but if someone comes to you and they say to you that they've seen Jesus, you just dismiss that immediately. You see, the Apostle Paul was the last person to have seen the risen Christ. We find that in chapter 15 of the same epistle. In chapter 15, he brings out four lasts in that chapter. In verse number 26, he speaks about the last enemy that is destroyed, that is death. In verse 45, he speaks about the last Adam. And in verse 52, he speaks about the last trump. The first of the four last that he speaks of is this. All are in relation to chronological sequence of time. So he says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. When everything is concluded and the kingdom has been offered back up to the Father and God is all in all, the last enemy that shall be destroyed, put down forever, is death. So in the sequence of time, when every enemy is subject to the Christ of God, death shall never rise again. Thank God for that great prospect. But then he speaks of the last Adam. He, 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 he speaks about the last Adam and the second man. When it comes to the Adamic race, when it comes to those who follow in the line of Adam, Christ puts an end to them. At the cross, he put an end to the Adamic race. Thank God for that. The last Adam. He concluded it all when he took our sins at Calvary's cross. But he's the second man. I'm very thankful it doesn't say the last man. The second man because he now commences a new race. There are two federal heads there as you know. Adam is the first federal head of a failed race. But Christ is the, is a, is the head of a new race. And as the second man, he now has those that spring forth from him. His offspring. Or in the, in, the, in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, we, we find, Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Oh, says the writer, he shall have a generation. And the generation is based upon his resurrection. And that's the whole point of chapter 15, as you know. So he says, there is many that shall come after him. But he's the last Adam. He concludes that race. 
Then the last trump, of course, in the sequence of time in this dispensation, there shall be a final trump, and the believers shall be summoned away. Again, I come back to that point. Brothers and sisters, if this was today, how will we conclude our race in view of the finish line? But when you come to verse 9, verse 8 actually, of that same chapter, he speaks about this. He says, last of all, in relation to those who had seen the risen Christ, last of all, me also, as one born out of due time. And the last person in the chronological sequence of those that saw the risen Christ, the last person to have ever seen the risen Christ was Paul. And he saw him first on the Damascus Road. It's interesting if you go through the New Testament from chapter 9 of the book of the Acts, and you count the times that the apostle witnessed the risen Christ. I think there are at least nine, possibly eleven. That will be for some discussion at another time. But he saw the risen Christ on at least nine distinct occasions, appearing to him, bringing to him truth that he would impart to the believers. So I come back to this, beloved brothers and sisters, maybe in the university, maybe in the workplace, maybe dealing with Christian brothers and sisters who are caught up in systems and places of which are teaching them error. If anyone comes to you to say they've seen the risen Christ, you just point them back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 8. And you tell them that the Word of God says, the last person was Paul, the apostle. In fact, we had someone say to us not too long ago that a lady we met, and uh, she said that she had seen Jesus, just a young girl in her 20s. She said she had seen Jesus. So my question to her was, well, it's very interesting. Could you tell me what he looks like? Because there's lots of pictures around and they all seem to sort of conflict uh, in, in their uh, illustration of, of what Jesus might look like. So you could clarify this for me and tell me what he looks like. Oh no, she said, it was just a bright light. But it was definitely Jesus that I saw. If your salvation story is based upon something as flimsy and as unscriptural as that, my friend, you need to think again. So the apostle declares in chapter 9 his apostolic authority. He speaks not only having seen the risen Christ. If you were to move to the second epistle in the 12th chapter, you would find there that he declared to the Corinthians that he was among them with with consistency. The word is endurance or patience that is used. He says, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now the word patience there is, is consistency. 
So it's not just a flash in the pan. He wasn't among the Christian believers in Corinth and displayed some, uh, some apparent miraculous uh, 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 supernatural sign as a flash in the pan and then, then there was nothing else. No, there was consistency in this. And just according to what the Lord Jesus said to those uh, apostles that he left on, on Mount Olivet as he rose and recorded for us at the end of Mark's gospel, that he would be with them, working through them with signs and wonders. Now the Apostle Paul appears on the scene and he's in the, Corinthian, in the midst of the Corinthian believers and he displays with absolute clarity his apostolic authority. There could be no challenge and he's bringing this to their remembrance. The proof of his apostolic authority. And this was necessary, of course, because there were those Judaizing teachers in, in particular that wanted rid of the Apostle Paul and wanted to bring in teaching that was not biblical. So he declares clearly. And when you come to the end of chapter 9, having given the proof of his apostolic authority, having given the illustration uh, illustrations through the chapter of how he used self-restraint in the assembly there and among the believers so that they may profit and prosper. He then concludes the chapter with this race that's in view. He gives a great illustration of the, the Christians that are running a race. Beloved brothers and sisters, this afternoon or this morning at the conference, I want us to understand this, that we are together and we are running this race together. He says we all run. But he says you and me as an individual will obtain the prize. Now, let us be careful in this. You see, the reason why he brings in those two aspects again is because of the very subject matter that is upon his mind. Liberty in the life of the believer and not stumbling another. Remember this, he says. You, you are running a race, but there are others running the same race too. Don't stumble them. But you're running a race of which when you get to the finish line, you are going to receive not another's prize, you're going to receive your own prize, your own reward for how you have run the race. And he brings this to, to their attention and he draws the illustration there of the athlete. And, and he speaks of those athletes that train fastidiously, that they might, it, with self-discipline, they might obtain that prize that's before them when they run their race. Great training in view in the life of the individual, that as they run that race, they, they may obtain, and though there may be a few of them lined up, as you see in the Olympics, there's only one Usain Bolt that eventually claims the gold medal. So he says, look, believers, understand this. They do it for a perishable crown, a wreath that will disappear with time. He says, you and I, we do this. We are running this race with an eternal, a crown that shall never fade away. And you know, when it comes to the Scriptures, there are at least five crowns. I see six. But there are at least five. 
crowns on offer for the believer. And so he says, what about you and what about me? And notice at the end of that chapter, he now not points to the believers. Having done that through the chapter, he now points the finger firmly at himself. And he says, I therefore so run. In view of this great Christian race, in view of the prize that is in view, the apostle now looks back at himself and analyzes his own running. Beloved brothers and sisters, we are very good at looking over our shoulder at how other people are running. But I think in view of the message that we had last night, for us all to go home and pray, I hope you did that. To go home and pray and just get into the presence of the Lord. How am I doing? How profitable is that? In fact, he's going to follow on in chapter 10. And what we don't see in this session, we'll see in another, God willing. Of how that was the mistake of those Israelites in the wilderness. Self-discipline. Analyzing of self is necessary in this Christian race. Don't be looking over the shoulder at others all the time. And so he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, but so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I discipline my body, or, or I, I prod it to the point of annoyance. And I bring it into subjection, lest if I by any means were to have preached to others and then become disqualified, become a castaway. What a tragedy for a believer, particularly a believer that has influenced others to become disqualified. He moves into chapter 10 with this thought upon his mind. And it's obviously so strongly upon his mind that he's going to spend numbers of verses in relation to this very subject now. He says, I want to draw your attention in view of self-discipline in the life of the believer that you might not become disqualified. We can be disqualified, by the way, from assembly fellowship. We can be disqualified from overseership. We can be disqualified from teaching the saints. We can be disqualified from rewards that are up ahead. These things are brought out for us in the New Testament. So he says, in view of the, the serious, uh, seriousness and the solemnity of this matter, I'm going to spend a few verses on this, teaching you and showing you graphically and clearly and demonstrating how that the Israelites that went through the wilderness they were disqualified in their race, many of them, because they fell through unbelief into iniquity. So he, he opens chapter 10 with this thought. You know, it's very interesting, beloved brothers and sisters, and I'm going to come back to this point more than once. If you are to turn back to Numbers chapter 1, you'll find the close of the book of Leviticus and they've received their instructions as to how to function now. And the book of Numbers opens and they, they make account of all those individuals, able men. Men that are able to go to war. Men that are 20 years old above. 
And if you were to go to Numbers chapter 1, you would find that there are 603,550 men that are counted there. Men that are able to go to war in Israel. Responsible men. 603,550. Now he says, do you know how many actually entered the promised land across the Jordan out of those 603,000? Two. All the rest were disqualified in the wilderness. Does that sink in? He's bringing this to their attention. How many of the believers that are seated on the seats here? A brother made a remark after the meeting last night. And it was a remark that made my heart jump, knowing what I had felt had been laid upon the, uh, upon the heart in view of this weekend. And he spoke about the tragedy. And he said it was his prayer that he might not finish the course disqualified in sin. I, as I look around this conference this afternoon, and as I look first and foremost at myself, I wonder how many of us will arrive to the finish line intact. Like the apostle, and will be able to lay their hand and with good conscience say, I fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It's not boastful to say that. With good conscience before God. Yes, the examining of motives will take place in a coming day. And the apostle had already taught these very same believers that he was of no judge of internal motives. God will be that judge. But in view of his conscience before God, he had fought a fight as far as he knew in accordance with this book, the Holy Word of God. Brothers and sisters, what about you and what about me? We must pray for one another. We must seek to preserve one another. Preserve our own testimony. Preserve the testimony of others. Self-discipline is needed in the life of the individual in relation to this. Chapter 10. Now, three sections to chapter 10, as I mentioned, Israel's submersion, Israel's sins, and lessons from Israel's sacrifices. The first few verses, verses 1 to 5, are taken up with Israel's baptism. Great lessons can be learned from this, and I want to just learn just two or three lessons before I sit down and give way to my dear brother. And then, God willing, we'll pick up this topic again later, if not tomorrow. Lessons from Israel's baptism. 
Now, what he wants them to understand by opening the chapter, see, it's good for us to look behind the scenes. In fact, that's the very statement of the, open, the opening statement of the chapter, isn't it? I don't want you to be ignorant. You see, we are not to be ignorant believers. And the thought there is ignorant through lack of knowledge. Not ignorant because of what? But, but not ignorant through lack of God's provision. No, no. Ignorant through lack of knowledge in our own life. God has made abundant provision in the life of the believer. There is divine provision on offer in this holy book that will enable the believer for an entire lifetime and fortify them to arrive at the finish line intact to receive the prize. There is abundant provision, but it will be through my lack of knowledge my lack of understanding of divine truth. Again, uh, uh, was it uh, our brother last night or, or David in his opening remarks last night or someone in their prayer at least? They, they spoke about how we are living our lives and what are we actually doing. When it really gets down to the nitty-gritty of it, it was our brother as he gave ministry last night. He spoke about floating along. Where am I in my Christian life? Am I devoted to the things of God? There's abundant provision to be. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. There can be no static Christian. There can be no stagnant Christian. You know a Christian just can't stand still. That's impossible. We are either going one way or we're going the other we can't be still even if we thought we could conclude we could stand still <laughs> others would still be passing us so we're actually going back <laughs> but he says I want you to understand this vital lesson as I open the chapter we all had the same start baptism. We all had the same start. All our fathers passed through the Red Sea. We not only all had the same start, we all had the same supply, spiritual food and spiritual drink from the rock, which is Christ. We all have the same sovereign Christ, which is guiding us, of whom we are following. So he says, in view of this, we have no excuse. We all have the same start. When I come back, God willing, I want to show you that not only have we all had the same start, and the same supply, and the same sovereign, we step out into the pathway of faith. That's when the rubber hits the road. We all start the same way, through Christ, in Christ, baptized, step out onto the pathway of faith. That's when it becomes real. Then in those next few verses, he addresses the reality of learning lessons from Israel's behavior so that we may never fall as they did. May God bless you.
bless his word.